welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Penn. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. My guest is Jeff Cruzy, who's a busy man by all accounts with the background to prove it. He's been a product manager, senior analyst at a VC, a company co-founder, a strategy manager at Viasat, a VC with Seraphim Space, as well as an angel investor for space military manufacturing startups Epsilon 3 and True Anomaly. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So when do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly, not all that much. Um, No, I I shouldn't say that. I, I, you know, I, I, I think my hobby is my work as well. So um, I, I spend a lot of time doing that. And it's, it's something that harkens back to my early childhood, actually, when I used to have a lot of fun trying to find the latest and greatest in, in local music and seeing where that, you know, would blossom eventually. So it's, it's only natural that uh, my, my work sort of parallels that later in life. Speaking of which, you've had a very varied career, and it's been focused mostly in the high-tech arena. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I, I fell into it by mistake, actually. I, I did an undergraduate um, business program at Wharton, and my final class involved writing a business plan and pitching it to a VC. And I remember I had to redo it, and I swore I would never write another business plan or get involved in VC or anything like that for the rest of my life. And here I am. And it kind of happened by mistake, actually. I was early on after university, I was working at a small merchant bank, working on private placements and M&A, primarily in uh, the biomedical fields. And I, I just naturally gravitated more towards the earlier stage uh, businesses. And that was because I just seemed to have an interest in what was the latest or greatest and what could be and what our future might look like as a result. And, and so, you know, in a weird turn of events, I decided that actually VC and startups were what I wanted to be more involved in. And I, I think I had sort of um, a, a little bit of altruism baked in there also because I wanted to see the world become a better place. I know a lot of people say that, but, uh, you know, I truly believe that, um, you know, one of the ways we can improve the world around us is via technology. And if I knew a little bit about it, maybe that's how I could help out the larger ecosystem. So um, after that, I got into climate tech and sort of the 1.0 back in 2008, worked at a few different startups in semiconductors, AR, VR, AI. Um, and eventually uh, it came full circle with space, which actually intersected a lot of those uh, previous areas and fell into it by accident and had more to do with my curiosity around why Google and Facebook wanted to put balloons and drones up to spread connectivity all over the world, which didn't make sense in my mind, but I was very ignorant of of, of that level of communication. So I ended up bugging the people over at Viasat questions for quite a while. And I think I bothered them so much, they just decided, fine, we'll give you a job if you'll leave us alone and you can figure <laughs> it out for yourself. 
I, I need to do that maybe. It's, it's, or, or you can be like the two of us and as well, we'll just create our own job. <laughs> you know, Mike and I, when we started this company, say space commerce is like the early days of Silicon Valley in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Is that kind of a fair assessment? And if so, is the upside going to be similar? You know, I think it's hard to tell. I, I, I was asked a very similar question back in 2008 about climate tech. And I don't know that I felt as optimistic about climate tech and that it would remain sort of a smaller portion of the larger energy industry. And, and that, might, that might be it because of a lot of uh, regulatory hurdles that might not, or in political hurdles, we might not be able to get beyond. In retrospect, I was completely wrong about that entirely. And it, it's come back in a huge way and I'm happy for it because I think it's one of the most important um, issues of our time. And if, if, I'm, if I'm looking at my previous pattern matching uh, record, I would say, well, I could probably be wrong about space as well in that um, maybe we're gonna go through that valley, somewhat of a valley of death in, in, in the short term because the, the funding environment has slowed down. There's less funding available for a lot of startups, but there, there are some, some tailwinds, which, is, which are great. Like, um, you know, it, space commerce intersects defense so much. And with the current geopolitical climate, that, that could, you know, potentially provide a lot of non-dilutive early stage funding for more of those space commerce companies. Uh, that could also mean that uh, the U.S. government, who is largely the, lar who is the largest customer typically in that segment, uh, will be putting more money towards it. Um, and I think also there are some trends in terms of uh, sovereignty within different technological domains that space cuts across that are becoming more and more important again because of the geopolitical climate. So we could actually see more support than we typically would um, outside of these sort of exogenous uh, trends. But is space technology today more mature than that, that uh, uh, green technology was back in 2008? Are we ahead of the curve in space technology? I think so, actually. There is... It, it, it's a it's a fairly well known quantum. We 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 characterize the space environment pretty well thus far, and the the proof of science isn't um, as as high of a hurdle for for space tech as I believe it was for for climate tech back in two thousand eight. Meaning, you know, it's it's there's less less inertia for for those businesses moving forward. So it it could very well ramp up a lot faster. Also, I mean we're putting more and more infrastructure in orbit, don't necessarily need it on uh, terrestrially on earth. And that could also drive a lot of that. I mean, very rapidly telecommunications is becoming a space business. And and that, that can drive just huge waves of innovation. In fact, a lot of the re market reports we look at show that, that the telecommunications aspect of it is what's driving the satellite industry right now. Between the satellite internet and, and satellite television, that is what is really giving a big boost to a lot of these satellite companies. Absolutely agree with you there. But when you, and I want to just kind of dig into this for just a moment, because in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I often am, 
But you look at solar technology now, windmills are basically doing the same thing that they did in, you know, in Holland in the 1800s. They still turn, they still generate energy out of wind. Um, and it seems like the space technology is moving so much faster than that. Uh, it seems like every time you turn around, there's something new, whereas solar and wind, the the advancements seem to have been way more incremental, whereas the space improvements have been exponential. I, I would agree with you there. Uh, a big reason why is because, and, and I, I hope nobody digs on me for this, but there, there's this sort of the graybeard effect that a lot of people, younger um, engineers in, in space tech refer to, which is there's, there's a great body of work that's been done, you know, for the last few decades uh, by folks that came out of sort of the Cold War era. And that, that became the standard. And it was a different design philosophy too. It was redundancy upon redundancy uh, to assure that there was performance of whatever system you're putting up in orbit. That's changed a lot with, with the idea of launching things in the LEO, which makes it a bit more of a disposable than it was this thing that needed to, to remain in orbit for you know, a decade or two. So uh, I, I think you know, that, that's one interesting aspect of it. And then that means that there's a larger upside to gain with respect to integrating newer technologies that weren't being designed in for the last few decades because of those dynamics I just described. So we can use you know, off the shelf components for a lot of these LEO satellites, um, faster chips, um, better sensors, and all of a sudden we see this you know, faster ramp than, than we'd normally see. You look up Greybeard in the dictionary, you'll find my picture, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's neither here nor there. I, I, was, I shouldn't talk, right? You can, you can see it. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was one of those kids who at 10 years old was up watching the first moon landing. So you, that, that kind of gives you an idea of, of my time frame in this business. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of these startup companies because you do a lot of investing in, in space companies. What makes a startup successful? And then what are some of the most common mistakes that the founders of space companies make? So one of the most interesting proxies I've found for successful space companies, and this isn't universally true, but I've seen it uh, anecdotally quite a few times, which is some of the best space companies early on were very, very good at winning non-dilutive funding from government sources, specifically the US government. I, I think it's hard to argue that there would be a SpaceX without a lot of that kind of funding early on. And really taking advantage of that to go through that early R&D phase so that science and efficacy are proved before going out to investors is really, really important. Um, and, and, and I think a leg up to, to a lot of those businesses as compared to others that just go out and try and raise venture capital for, for what is basically R&D at that point. Um, so that 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 is one one good proxy for success of a lot of these companies that I've seen. Um, one thing, and and this is less related to the technology, and it's just something I, I broadly see across deep tech and and specifically within within space tech as well, which is there there are a lot of competing forces for talent right now. SpaceX, Amazon, Microsoft, these are companies that can pay rather healthy you know, sums of money to, to people to go work for them. And then th this is this is who a lot of startups are competing with. And what that translates to is really challenging hiring environments 
where it takes longer and costs a lot more than initially anticipated for, for a lot of these startups. And that can create reverberations in terms of financing down the road as well. And I think there's a big advantage to startups that figure out and understand that well early on as compared to doing it on the fly because that, that can allow you to bring in talent um, in a more timely fashion without having to pay you know, super high premium. And, it, and it, it's interesting because it's, it's not exactly related to the technology or the business specifically other than you know, this is the environment that they're in. And one of the ways I've seen a lot of early stage funds really actually provide value to their startups is helping them in this specific regard. For those of us who don't live in that financial world, when you talk about undiluted capital, what does that mean? Sure. Undiluted capital means um, it's capital that's going into the business that isn't buying a portion of the equity of that company. So if, 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 if I invest in a company one day and then another investor comes in to buy more of it um, at a different valuation, that will, that will reduce the size of you know, my slice of the pie somewhat. And ultimately, hope, hoping that the, the pie is much bigger later on, but um, that that does dilute down my my shareholding. So non-dilutive funding often will come from um, government sources. There's some some private grants that can be applied for as well. Uh, there's there's a lot more opportunities for those sorts of things. And you know, I should flag that the Cibber program that the U.S. government has put forward across um, a number of their different agencies and, and branches of military has really been such a a good support for a lot of these space tech companies. You can tell I've watched just enough Shark Tank to be dangerous. <laughs> but but along those lines, do, does does the money chase success? When you look at at you know, you said that there wouldn't be a SpaceX without investment, and everyone thinks, well, Elon Musk is a billionaire; he's self financing all of this. Uh, Jeff Bezos, much the same way, he made his money with Amazon, and now he's got a rocket company. Do those kinds of of companies find it easier to get? people like you to invest in them because they've already been successful at something else? I, I, I think a lot of VCs might agree with that statement. I like to use my counterintuition a little bit in that if, if that's the same pattern everybody's trying to match to, it's going to be a highly competitive company to invest in. And my probability of success as an investor might not be very high. I might get pushed out by a, a much larger investor, somebody that's got a bigger brand name. And therefore it's, it's you know, I wanna find an area that I can't, or I don't have to compete in as much. And I, I, there's not a lot of examples of, of successful space tech entrepreneurs just yet. It's, we're very early on. So I, I, I don't think my intuition would be leading me well if that's the, the approach I tried to take. So what I, what I try and look for are other qualities in founding teams that might give me a, a good indication of potential success. And that can take many different shapes or forms. But one of the, one of the ones that seems to be pretty consistent across all of these um, companies is that um, just deep technical experience in the field that they're involved in. I'm talking with space investor Jeff Cruzy on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click on subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Jeff, there are some disturbing trends that we're being faced with right now in population, uh, declining population growth rates, 
the onset of inflation, uh, governments, companies, and individuals with too much debt. And unfortunately, there's the war and the prospect of war. What kinds, how do those kinds of issues affect investing these days and particularly investing in the near future? I think what's happening in Ukraine right now has actually highlighted some important areas that might have been neglected historically by the venture capital community. For a long time, investments have been skewed primarily towards enterprise SaaS or software as a service and consumer. And then I think the next largest category is, is healthcare. A very, very small sliver of the total investment stack has been dedicated towards issues like climate and energy and energy sovereignty, um, which, like I said, in Ukraine, that's, that's highlighted the need for that. So I think we're starting to see a new trend for investors turning their attention more towards what I would call like critical technologies that aren't um, you know, necessarily part of those three other categories that I just mentioned. And that also probably has to do with uh, the fact that, you know, because we software has been eating the world for the last you know, couple of decades, um, as Mark Andreessen would say, we, we, it's become hyper-competitive and we've, we've reached some limits there to what, what those applications can do. And it's time to turn our attention back to things like the hardware and the hard tech, which eventually begets a whole new um, set of applications. And I, I like to analogize it to the, the, smart, or the, the iPhone actually, whereas before we used to have these hard-coded keyboards and our Blackberry phones and limited functionality, um, couldn't have an Uber app on, on that phone really. But along came iPhone with the touchscreen, which you know, a modification of the hardware there begat a whole new marketplace of applications. You know, they, they started um, adding you know, better um, sensors to the phones. So you could do things like take much nicer pictures. All of a sudden you didn't need a digital camera with you. And, and now you have all of these um, you know, photo-based social networks and that exploded and, and created tons of value. So I, I think we're going through this new cycle of innovation so that you know we can be get an, a, like a third wave almost. Well, despite the kind of gloomy nature of the previous question, are you generally optimistic or are you pessimistic about the future? I, I you know, it's funny because when I was younger, I was pretty pessimistic about the future. As I got a little bit older, I think I recognized it's sort of business as usual for, for humanity. And, we, and these, are, these are things that happen as, as terrible as they are. One of the things I do believe in is many of these issues can be staved off by leveraging technology to achieve stability and resilience. I, I'll use an example. Uh, folks at the CIA will, will tell you, you know, they're not really that interested in like spy gadgets. They're more interested in fixing problems like food security in countries so that they don't erupt into civil war and create bad actors against the U.S., and all of a sudden, you know, you start to see what, what's really more important and investable in, in the coming future, which is around technology to achieve that kind of stability and resilience that, that I was talking about and, and why that's an area that I focus almost all my effort and time on. How much handholding do you have to do? I, because a lot of the folks that, that are starting up these companies are very smart people, but they're also 
rocket scientists, for lack of a better term. Do they have the business sense that to, to make a company successful? And, and do you get involved at all with the companies in which you invest, helping them make a successful business? One of the things I pride myself on is being one of those investors that actually does roll up their sleeves to support their businesses. And I think most of the companies that I worked with will attest to that. There are plenty of VCs out there that will say they do that, but are really just marketing off the back of the success of their funds or their, their startups that they invest in. So do I need to do a lot of handholding? It, it really, it varies pretty widely, um, to be honest, because there are some of those stellar entrepreneurs out there that just, they come up learning curves so quickly. I, it, it doesn't take much effort to, to support them on, you know, the operational and commercial side of things alongside, you know, their deep technical expertise. Other times, sure, you know, some, some entrepreneurs don't have that background and they need a bit of handholding. And that's, that's not to say that, you know, the, the founders are the end all be all of the survival of that business. So, um, yes, there are times when, you know, I do get very heavily involved, you know, all the way down to, you know, product development and co-development all. And then as high as helping out with introductions into various governments and, and corporates that, um, you know, could be potential customers. And then there are some of those businesses that, that don't need my help at all. Um, and, and they've, and they've got better help than myself, uh, for, for their specific need. It does seem like there's a lot of money ready to invest in the right deals in space commerce. Is that a correct perception? And if it is, why is, why is, why is it happening now? I think this kind this, the why it's happening now comes back to that notion around Software has been eating the world for the last few decades. Some of those areas I've mentioned, like enterprise SaaS, have become hyper-competitive. Another way to think about that is it's limited the return potential for investors. So they need to go look elsewhere for outsized returns. And, that, and that's typically what VCs are looking for. They're not looking for a company to grow you know, once or twice in terms of value. They want something that grows 10, 20 times in terms of value. To, to justify the risk that they're taking for an investment. So um, coming back to, is, is, there, is there ample funding out there? There is what investors will refer to as a lot of dry powder or capital left to be deployed right now. And I think space has become very, very popular. I, I, I would say that largely has to do with, with SpaceX and Elon Musk generating you know, a large amount of interest in this category, but showing, you know, and creating a real pathway to, to making economics actually work. And intuitively, there are a lot of things that we just can't do terrestrially that we can do with space tech at scale. And I think that's why we see such a large intersection between space and climate, for example, because if we're really needing to look at um, emissions of gas pipelines that are or that are leaking it, it's really hard to do that at scale with terrestrial cameras even drones or planes if we can do that you know in, in very broadly using sensors in orbit that that all of a sudden makes the economics work much better and and so I, I, I expect that we'll continue to see plenty of investment in this area especially if the largest customer who's still the US government for the most part is going to be spending much much more money in this area 
tied to some of these challenges across geopolitics and, and climate that we've talked about um, that in, in providing non-dilutive funding for that, then that that's music to, to the ears of most investors. Does the investment community understand space or is it a fad for lack of a better word right now? So it, 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 again, it reminds me a lot of climate tech back in, back in 2008, where it, it felt like a fad. There were a lot of people that had made money in enterprise software as a service that uh, were interested in climate, largely driven by you know large sums of government money that were going towards it. And I, I didn't see a lot of skill set or industry experience at that point in time. That's, that's changed dramatically since then. There are a lot more qualified scientists, people from the utility industry, that are, that are more heavily involved and, and have better credibility to help drive outcomes for, for startups that they invest in. Um, I, I would say space is sort of in a similar point in which there, there are fewer people than I'd hoped with, with the serious background in, in space tech to go credibly invest in them, but that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think you know, it's, it's a win-win. If I, again, use the, the climate technology, Back in 2008, there was, from that period, there were some massive companies that were invested in and still exist today that, that really do move the needle um, for, for addressing climate. And similarly with, with space, I think we're, we're sort of in this embryonic period where you know, there's a lot of um, money moving around and, wealth, and, and it's primarily driven by interest. But as it matures, we'll see more and more um, folks that um, have, you know, the, the, the background in astrophysics and and developing sensors and optics and antennas and, and propulsion systems um, becoming more specialized, and especially on the investment side of things and helping propel those businesses even more um, than they would have been, you know, starting in 2018 or 19. Along those lines, what areas of space commerce need startups right now? What is missing in the market? So um, if you asked me a few months ago, I would have said on-orbit security. Um, that's not something that's really existed to date. And I've been writing about it for a while, and I was lucky to see that a company called True Anomaly emerged, and uh, they're often billed as the Anderella space. So I would have said that, but um, I, I'm an angel investor in the company, and I have a lot of confidence that this particular team will be able to really meaningfully address that challenge. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I keep coming across that, that stands out to me is that we have lots of data that's been generated from the various Earth observation satellite constellations that are up there, um, optical, SAR, hyperspectral, thermal, and so on. And that's data that developers will use to, to build applications of, of various types. And the, 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 the side of the application development that I see today uh, harkens back to game development many years ago, mm. where you would need a team of PhDs to develop a, a physics engine and, and you know, the generative landscapes and all these sorts of things. And along came of Unity and Unreal, these game development platforms that dramatically simplified all of that for people. So you didn't need a PhD to do that. You didn't even need to finish high school to go do that. Right. And um, it became more accessible. Then all of a sudden we saw 
the the market really grow in a meaningful way because we could get out and iterate on applications much faster, meeting the needs of customers in, in a, a much more efficient fashion. And I, I think there's an analogy to draw um, with Earth observation data today, which is I'm seeing a lot of these teams develop custom environments, reinventing the wheel every time. It, it takes some very skilled and, and highly trained PhDs oftentimes to do this, um, data scientists um, as well. And it's just not very accessible. And it's also to say that it's not the end-all be-all for applications. I mean, there's obviously lots of other data sources that they'll potentially use in building these applications. So I think there's probably room for an earth observation or geospatial data development platform that doesn't really exist today in, in a more coherent fashion, meaning, well, it's, it's not just earth observation data. There's also aerial drone, you know, sometimes you might want to use handset data. Um, you know, maybe you source a lot of it from the internet and, and use it in different and interesting ways. And I, I just, I don't think I see that today. Um, and part of the challenge is, I mean, oftentimes you still have to pick up the phone and call the various data providers to get uptime over the area of interest, as well as historical data that matches that you can train models on. And it's just, it's just this very manual process right now. And there's, it's not very automated. So um, I think, you know, in the future, we'll probably see something like the Unity or 3D and real geospatial computing. Which leads me into my final question, and that's to ask you to look out, if you will, over the next 10 to 15 years in space commerce and tell us what you see. I think there's going to be a large push for lunar dominance. We're watching folks like China, uh, you know, make plans for a persistent presence up there. Uh, and it's, it's, it, the U.S. will need to respond to that to some, in, in some way, shape or form. And where I once thought the cislunar economy was just sort of a government-supported far off bet, I think it'll be a much larger market than I had originally anticipated. And we'll start to see the early workings of that over the next decade with a sustained human presence. So, so you think that, that commercial companies are going to be very, very involved in that, in that lunar habitation? Absolutely, because NASA is, is getting better and better at working with commercial companies to achieve all those ends because it's such a huge project and it's, it would be very, very difficult to do that all by themselves. And it's not to say that they can't, they've done it in the past. They went to the moon before uh, with a lot less technology, but if we can start to integrate external um, innovation more rapidly, we can achieve those goals in much shorter timelines than we would have been able to otherwise. And I've seen a lot of folks in the last month or so talk about, well, we ought to just let Elon go to the moon because Artemis has had such a hard time getting off the launch pad. So, <laughs> and I think we can just kind of leave that hang right there, Jeff. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't, can't say I disagree. <laughs> Jeff Cruzy, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an interesting discussion. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.